Welcome back, everybody, to a brand new episode of the Three Way Miss podcast. Before we get to the show, I have to thank our sponsors, Golf and Ski Warehouse. You've heard us talk about them. They've got the equipment, they got the apparel, they've got the accessories, all at the best prices. Get in there, get fit for a new set of clubs. West Lebanon, Greenland, and Hudson. We're in Scarborough, Maine. You know where to find them. Appreciate Golf and Ski, all their support. TK, it's another new show. What do you have for us, bud? I mean, Schmitty, if you're going to release an episode on June 3rd, 6.03, what are we going to talk about? We got to talk about the 603 Brewery. Brewery. I mean, come on. The synergy is just bubbling over here right now. So, and my, my fantastic friends over there, they've obviously got a ton of good stuff going on. They got a new brewery that is put in place a couple of years ago. Obviously we're coming out of COVID. The place is going to blow up this year and they really, they got something for everybody. So um, why don't we crack one right now, Schmitty? Oh, I love it. What are you having? Is that this, the summer ale? I put the summertime out first here. It's very That's, nice. Uh, it's a special little something for the summer, a little lower in ABV. It's got a little little hop note to it. But as I said, they got something for everybody. So, you know, what's been flying for them lately? They released a 16-ounce IPA last year. They have a scenic session, which is their kind of lower ABV session IPA. And then their summertime, as we both cracked, is kind of one of my favorites from them. But then as most people are doing right now, they also kind of entered into the seltzer world and they have a little nine pack out there. You're going to get black cherry pomegranate. You're going to get limeade. You're going to get tangerine in a nine pack. And it's a nine pack. Those are 16 ounces too, right? Yes, exactly. They're 16 ounces. So those those nine 16 ounce cans equate to 12, 12 ounce cans. But uh, they're doing a lot of great things. They're great people. They love golf. So Wonderful. it's a nice little shout out on 603 day to get our friends at 603 brewery in the mix. And uh, they're going to be jumping for joy, drinking some summertime down in the uh, London dairy area as they listen to this episode. So perfect, perfect beer for out on the golf course and then sitting around the campfire afterwards too. So thanks to 603. Thanks to NHD and Bell Vance, Thanks to golf and ski TK. Thank you as always. And everybody enjoy the latest episode of three-way miss. All right, everybody, welcome back. It is another major championship week with the U.S. Women's Open on deck at the Olympic Club. But before we go forward, let's go back a little bit to the PGA Championship. Guys, give me some quick thoughts on on Phil's win before we recap our picks from the PGA. Never saw it coming. I mean, that's my first thought is never saw it coming. I never saw it coming even on Sunday. I never saw it coming even on the back nine of Sunday. I just kept expecting something Phil like to happen. And I guess you could argue it actually did, in fairness to him, that that Phil won, you know, a sixth major at age 50. I mean, it was unbelievable. Special. Yep. It 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 I'm, you know, I was amazed. I'm still amazed. And you know, we can we can start talking about whether this puts Phil in the top 10, you know, uh, all time, which I'm not sure it quite does. But anyway, um, it was incredibly special victory and one that I don't think many of us saw coming. DK? Phil's win says to me that in five years, I'm going to have my peak golf moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> That's it. I love Drop it. the mic. <laughs> All right. Well, recapping our picks, it was not the best week for the uh, the three hosts here. I had 
Mark Leishman, who missed the cut. Patrick Reed was tied for 17th. Scotty had Jordan, who tied for 30th. Sam Burns was a WD, which was just a nice treat for you to get on Thursday morning, I'm sure, Scott. TK had uh, John Rahm, who tied for eighth, and Danny Berger, who apparently had the world's greatest comeback in the second round to make the cut and finish tied for 75th. So a bit of an ugly week from a picking standpoint, but hopefully we can get back on track with our women's opens picks coming up this week. Really neat. It's going to be at the Olympic Club. Heck of a test of golf. We've got a, a great guest in the second segment, Allison Walsh, is going to tell us all about the U.S. Open and Olympic Club. Um, TK, why don't we start with you? Give us your picks. All right, here we go. I'm going NB Park and Lydia Ko. Okay. We get Wait, out on the limb. NB is the betting favorite on every single line you look at. NB is the betting favorite. So well done. Lydia, that's a good pick as well. You know what? Uh, I find myself... Not really having a clue again, as always. But anyway, <laughs> um, I'm going to go with my heart, not my head, and I'm going to go with the Corda sisters. I want one of the two Corda sisters to win. I think they've both played great all year. Um, I think it is a ball strikers course. I think they have length. I think they both putt well. I'm going to go with the Corda sisters. One of the two of them. All right, I'm going to take Hannah Green and Amy Yang are my two picks. By the way, Amy Yang has had seven top 10 finishes, including runner-up, uh, two runner-up and a third in in the, her U.S. Women's Open career. So uh, those are some good numbers going in. But I'll take Hannah Green and Amy Yang as my two picks at Olympic Club for the U.S. Women's Open. So I'm going to throw in my Tyler Kelly tickle. Is that what it's called? Tingle. That's tingle play, tingle. not tickle. That The Tyler Kelly tickle is something that, well, that I, I don't think we're allowed there. to talk about on the podcast. <laughs> Shut it down. We Shut might, we it might down. be after that. All right. Um, I, I'm I'm very intrigued to see how the young phenom Rachel Heck does. Who, yes, who, me too. Who I think is legit. Who I think has got a bright future. This may be too early for her to do well, but she she uh, is an exceptional golfer. Who, by the way, just won the Annika Award as the best player in college golf. I believe that's what it's, it mm-hmm. goes to. Anyway, uh, that would be my sort of uh, dark horse. So just to give you a little color on her. So she's a rising sophomore at Stanford. She won six of nine starts this year and only 16 out of the 609 players she competed against beat her all year. Incredible numbers. Ridiculous. That's pretty good. I was going to say, we were talking about, uh, we'll, we'll talk to Allison about Michelle Wee a little bit. And I saw this, I saw this number. I've never actually seen it from a betting line perspective. She's obviously a local Bay, uh, you know, Bay area resident. She's plus 100,000 to one <laughs> to win the U S women's open. I only, I've never even seen it. So yes, if I can find that, I will be putting $5 on that somewhere. Okay. Why wouldn't you? Right? I've never even seen a number that high. Right. It's, wor- it's worth right. it. Well, it should be a fun week. Uh, really good golf course, really good test of golf. And again, great interview with Allison Walsh coming up. So enjoy it, boys. Enjoy the golf and, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, guys. Cheers. It's U.S. Women's Open Week, which is a great week. It's also uh, New England Women's Golf Week. And so in many ways... What better guest uh, could we have than, than truly one of the best 
New England women's golfers ever. And quite honestly, the pride of Westford Mass and Vesper Country Club. And uh, and we're thrilled on behalf of Three Way Miss to welcome Allison Walsh. Welcome, Allison. Thank you, guys. It's a privilege to be on here. So I'm looking yeah. forward to chatting. Great. Good stuff. So so we got plenty of time to go in the U.S. Women's Open stuff and, and, and a lot of fun topics in the world of women's golf. But let's start with with how you got into this great game, which, which if my, my homework is correct, golf was not your first love necessarily that you were, you were an athlete. You played a bunch of sports, which by the way, I wish more kids did today, but anyway, you played a bunch of sports. So talk to me about your childhood and then inevitably how you crept into this great game of golf. Yeah. Well, naturally I grew up, you know, my dad was a golfer. So he kind of introduced my brother and myself into it. My little sister is not a golfer. But, you know, I, I was just an athlete growing up, uh, played in everything you can name. You know, I tried everything, dabbled in everything, was fortunate to be athletic. So kind of liked everything I did. Um, play didn't honestly didn't like golf when I started. I only was in it for like the chicken fingers, junior golf. But literally, like I would quit on like the fourth hole and go to the clubhouse. But um, I, you know, basketball was a huge passion of mine. That's kind of where my athleticism directed me. I guess I put all my time into that. I mean, I did AAU, I did all that. So, you know, my high school years, that's kind of where my focus was. And I just kind of naturally excelled at golf on the side. And then, you know, better late than never, I guess, my junior, senior year of high school is when I really kind of fell in love with golf. So it was a little late on the college scheme of things. And so that's kind of how I stayed local, went to Boston college, which super grateful for, but I kind of went there, no real golf aspirations, if you will, beyond college. And then, you know, that year there, I continued to play nationally amongst college golf and kind of was recognized. And at that point decided I needed to go somewhere to excel my game to, if I wanted to play professionally. And that's how I ended up, uh, eventually going to University of Arizona and playing there in a great program, which, which also grateful for. And that kind of led me to the pro ranks, but yeah, started as a general athlete, which I agree with you, Scott. I think I wish, I think great, some great golfers that are athletic. It's a, it's a huge asset um, for multiple parts of the game, but I'm grateful for it for sure. So you had some great success as an amateur in mass. Um, and you touched on also your, um, your college career, which is pretty unique, right? I mean, you're three-time All-American in Arizona, and yet it was, I believe, if I, if I understand this correctly, it was your fourth college. So you went to BC, then you went to Tulane, by the way, and we acknowledge that you, uh, the coach of Tulane when you were there was my next-door neighbor at Hanover uh, growing yeah, up. Yeah, Sue Bauer. Sue Bauer now was Susie Johnson. And then Katrina hits Tulane, so you think you did some SMU time. Anyway, long story short, to be a three-time All-American Arizona while being your four schools kind of unique. Yeah, you know, I always say three schools. I think four sounds a little much, but because <laughs> I technically was a visiting student at SMU. But okay. um, yeah, BC for a year, transferred to Tulane, spent a good year at Tulane. It was my second year um, move-in weekend, actually, when Katrina hit. You, you were know, just barely there when Katrina hit? Yeah. I remember. So it was my second year there. My, my poor father came down, you know, it's sweltering heat in New Orleans. And, you know, I was moving into this awesome house with a bunch of my college buddies and my dad sweated and cleaned in this whole house, you know, (laughs) and then sure enough, I think 48 hours later, we all had to evacuate, but 
yeah. And as athletes, they kind of delegated us to Texas schools and the golf teams, the men and women's went to SMU. So we're visiting students. That's why I say three schools, Okay. but, uh, <laughs> they gave us that year back of eligibility. So I kind of was just a student that year. And then that's how I was at U of A for more than a couple of years. You know, it was all awesome. To be honest, everyone asks me about it. I thoroughly loved every spot. And I think it happened for a reason in a weird way, because everything kind of was a stepping stone. Very cool. So um, you had, uh, I was going to say, you had um, uh, something around 10 collegiate wins. Do you have a win while you were at University of Arizona that kind of sticks out as kind of one of your favorite wins, favorite memories? So when I was at Tulane, you know, I won a bunch. I was all American there. So I didn't really have reason to not be confident, but I was very apprehensive about going to UVA because they were like number one in the country. And I literally thought, what if I don't make the travel team? So I won my first tournament as an Arizona Wildcat. So that kind of like, I'll never forget it. You know, I was walking down, I was at Vanderbilt. Um, and that kind of just really, you know, kind of boosted my morale and confidence going into that, that's program. So that kind of stands out, I guess. Pretty incredible that's, for sure. That's a yeah. good one. Mm-hmm. What, um, during that time there, uh, you obviously played in some other amateur events throughout the course. And then in 2007, you obviously won the North South, which is such an incredible tournament. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah. So the North South, I mean, I obviously have a sweet spot. I love Donald Ross courses, grew up on them, went to that tournament, love Pinehurst. It's one of the best tournaments in the country. So going down there, format of the USAM, all that sort of stuff, kind of love that. Huge win because that was a year... I remember that summer was really important because I wanted to make the Curtis cup team and some of the USGA stuff. So coming out of the win there was clutch as far as like timing. I remember that summer I was kind of maybe helped lock up a spot for me. First big win, if you will, nationally outside of college scheme. So I, yeah, I have a special place for Pinehurst now forever, but I always enjoyed it. Otherwise. Do you get back to Pinehurst at all? Have Have you been back? Yeah. So I played, um, my first time back there since amateur was when we played the U S open with the men that year, we went back to back weeks. So it was kind of unique because that's when they re had redesigned the whole place. So it was almost like a whole different golf course in my eyes. And then last year, coincidentally, they invited me back for like a weekend just to go and play golf. They opened up a whole new North and South bar and all this stuff. So I kind of went and had a fun weekend, which was pretty cool. I saw you post a photo with Chris at the 91st hole, I believe. Yeah. And then was, uh, <laughs> so I was the first North-South champion to have a whiskey in the North-South bar. Oh, that's, <laughs> oh, that's so cool. So they took a picture. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Did you and the husband break out the wedges and play the cradle? Oh, my God. That that was awesome. Isn't the that cradle, amazing I mean, over there? I could be out there all day. Such a cool spot. Yeah. So it's made for people who just love the game, whether or not you're a premier pro, premier amateur, or anything in between. It is the coolest spot to be hanging out. Yeah. And then they have the bad, the good and the bad is they put the course records up on the wall, right in the shack. Yeah. yeah. And they're attainable, right? They're nothing crazy. So I was like, I'm gonna keep playing this thing because you're always, you know, <laughs> it's a good and a bad. I remember I kept telling Chris was like, we gotta get out of here, you know. But it's a cool spot. So at what point with, you know, being an accomplished amateur, being an accomplished collegiate player, when did it really creep into your mind, this idea of playing professional golf? You know, when did that sort of start to become something that you were really driving towards that you thought I can make this become a reality? I would pretty much say once I got to Arizona, you know, I was surrounded by a lot of people that either turned pro, still live there or on the team were kind of 
we had a couple of girls leave our program and turn pro. So I was surrounded in that like world, if you will, or like knew of it more than I ever had. And then just excelling there and becoming one of the top amateurs, it just kind of became the next next step, I guess. I never really thought otherwise at that point. It was just kind of my one-way direction. It was my passion, still is. And then, you know, once you go to Q school, obviously that determines what you're going to do. But Arizona, I think really just opened my eyes to that was what I was going to do. So what do you think is one big question, you know, we're where I'm around it certainly. And I think the guys are too around a lot of good players and we understand, you know, there is that difference between somebody who's a really good amateur player and somebody who ultimately is able to make it out on tour for the, for the listeners, tell them what you think is something that they probably don't understand. What is that difference between somebody who is so accomplished as an, an amateur player and somebody who is able to not only get out on tour, but maintain that and create a living, winning a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple things that feed into it because there's so many great players that don't make it right. Um, I think hard work is huge, right? There's people that have talent, but they just don't put that a little bit of extra effort in, you know, whether, you know, putting, right? Like you could hit the ball miles and do all this stuff. You need to go to put some work in, but I was thinking just getting the ball in the hole. And I think that goes back to maybe it's athleticism for someone, for me, like I could scrape it one day and somehow score, you know? And I think just, you know, and you can kind of like see that character in people, I think. And I think, on both ways, right? You play with someone that stripes the ball and people are like, man, this person's got a tour, tour action, right? But then you go out on the golf course with them and you're like, no, they don't have it. And it's just like a character thing beyond the work part, right? And then when you're out there, it's just, and it goes back to just knowing yourself, right? Like obviously you're out there for a reason and then it becomes a part of how do you work? Like, how do you prepare yourself? I know girls go out there and they're guys, I don't know on the guy's side, they'll play every week. Well, that's not what people maybe need. So it's kind of determining your path. Um, but I think it's, it just goes back to character and, and hard work. You know, it's interesting, Allison. I couldn't agree more with your uh, assessment of, of the difference between a good amateur and a pro. And, you know, we've both been fortunate enough to play medalist a fair amount. And, and within that framework, you get to play with some great people, but more than that, some great players. And that certainly to me is what stood out was, you know, they all hit it good. I mean, for the most part, they all hit it good. But the reality is we don't hit it good every day. And what always stood out to me with these guys was they just got it in the hole because they do hit bad shots, right? They right. do hit bad shots and and they they accept it. They move on. And and but more than that, boy, it's so impressive to watch them to get the ball in the hole. And it sounds simple and it sounds like, you know, yeah, of course you get the ball in the hole. But the reality is. You get in all kinds of places and all kinds of situations. They just get the ball in the hole and it's really impressive. Yeah, no, it's true. And I think that's why those grinder stats, if you will, really step out. You know, if you see an amateur that can make a ton of birdies, they might make a couple triples and doubles, but if there's birdies on there and stuff like that, that means they've got some, some grit in there. And right. I think that's a huge, you know, character show. So, so before we go to your to pro career and the, and the U.S. Open, all that good stuff, one last sort of amateur question I had was, and I only assume the, the Curtis Cup was a really cool, special, uh, I'm going to say week. It's really only kind of a weekend, but we'll say week. So I see it was, it was at St. Andrews, I believe, correct? Yeah. Okay, how good is that? And I know, very spoiled. Right? <laughs> yeah. And then, and then am I correct that you were 4-0? I was 4-0, Yeah. And, yeah. and was and was Stacy Lewis your partner three times or was that 
Stacy was my partner. Yeah. I mean, I got to double check on that. I want to say maybe three times. Yeah. So. Cause you had a singles and then you played singles. Like, yep. Um, so. She had to have been because I would have remembered. Yeah. She had to be my partner three times. So that's a pretty cool week. Pretty good partner. Pretty great experience. And what a special place. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, it was right after NCAAs and most of our team was kind of seniors in college golf. So we all literally flew from NCAAs right to St. Andrews. St. Andrews shut the place down for the whole week for us, including the clubhouse. Wow. Um, you know, I'd never so you got to go there. in the RNA. Oh, we used the locker rooms, their dining, everything. Oh, wow. The whole place was shut down. We were the first women to use the men's club uh, locker room, I believe, in that capacity. It's a lot of cool stuff, especially like with the history there. I had never played it that point or never been there. So just like going around being a tourist at the same time, uh, it was pr- it was great, you know, and the team was awesome. It was a bunch of my good friends, Stacy and I. Funny story here. First, we had the first match off and I'll never forget this and I'll give her grief about it forever. We're the first match <laughs> off and it's alternate shot, I think, the first day. And, you know, there's crowds and whatnot. And she's like, I'll hit the tee ball. And, you know, number one, St. Andrews can play long or short, depending on the wins. So she's like, I'm going to hit a foreign. She straight up chunks it on the tee. <laughs> so we have to lay up our second shot short of the burn. So we're sitting there. Yeah, we made par. But she just chunks it, lays the sod over. I think she hit it like 65 yards. And oh, it was hilarious. I love her. That yeah. first tee, though, with the RNA in the background. I mean, I, I just played there for fun a few times. And I yeah. was nervous because that whole atmosphere and you've got the you know, the Swilkin Bridge and Burn and you got the 18th green. So I could see being nervous just in general. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what, that's what she did. So she'll forever, uh, she'll never live that down. <laughs> well, that's the magic of alternate shot, isn't it? Right. Cause you're thinking, okay, I don't have to hit the tee shot. The pressure's off. What's the worst thing that could happen is, you know, she lays the sod over. Oh, she just did that. Now we're, yeah. now we're in big trouble. Then I had an easy sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> right. Do you still have a handful of friends from that team from that 20? 20- Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, um, Stacy, gosh, I was in Stacy's wedding a couple of years ago. I literally just started weeks ago. Um, Tiff Joe was on that team. Uh, Mina Harrigay, um, Amanda Blumenhurst, who I don't know if you guys know, does commentating. Yeah, sure. She played at Duke, um, I, right? Yep. Amanda played at Duke. Jenny Lee, her teammate. Gosh, who else? Megan Bolger, who now is Megan Stasi. She won the mid-am. She studied amateur. I think everyone on the team turned pro, but Megan Stasi has just been kind of a, a journey woman, amateur golfer, if you will. I think I literally just read this morning that Stacy's husband just got a new position. He's left Houston is going to Texas A&M. Oh, no way. Literally I think he today. was just named. I thought I read it this morning that he was named the new coach at Texas A&M. I would, yeah, they've been, he's been at Houston. That's they met via that way. Um, Huh. Oh, wow. Good for him. I know he's yeah. a great guy. So that'd be a good move. Well, let me, let me parlay that into it. This is a good question about Houston because Houston was one of the teams that participated recently in that LTP classic, obviously, which is kind of a, a pretty cool tournament from my perspective, but I'd love to get your perspective because that was a, a real drop ball by the NCAA from my view. So can you give me some thoughts on kind of how that played out? Yeah. I mean, the NCAA has been under some serious scrutiny this year, you know, with a bunch of different things with women in sport, but you know, I think what Barstool did and that whole event is awesome. You know, to take, you know, a lot of people can read about it and think, let's do something, but they actually took action on it and to give those girls an opportunity. I mean, I couldn't imagine being a senior who, 
you know, had an opportunity to go to NCAA championship and it was just stripped out from underneath me. So I think what they did was awesome, especially because it was in Arizona where the NCAAs was going to be. So they kind of had that atmosphere of going to Scottsdale, the whole thing. You know, I got some feedback, like one of the girls on tour, her husband's the um, head coach at Mississippi State, who also fell into that category of those teams. And so I, I know all the players and coaches were thrilled. I think it really made a point to the NCAA and it put it to the limelight. I think, I mean, they dropped the ball. I think they've, I don't get it. I mean, we could criticize them forever. I don't get it. I don't know what went on there. I wasn't there, but I, I don't, I don't think it was the right choice on their behalf. Yeah. I thought the one great thing was just brought more spotlight to women's golf, you know, yeah. gave, them, gave them more promotion off a drop ball by the NCAA women's golf got a, got an uplift out of it, which I thought was great. Yeah, it was awesome. So I'm, I'm glad they did that. Well, and ironically, I believe wasn't Mississippi in that regional. So they get through the regional without having to play. And then yep. they win the national championship, beating your Wildcats in the semis. Yeah. So, you know, kind of interesting that the team that I won't say a free pass because that's unfair because I obviously were a good team and had success throughout the year, but they get through the regionals without having to play and end up winning the NCAAs. Right. So there's a lot of asterisks, right? So, yeah, it's just, uh, it's, it's bizarre. Hopefully it sets the precedent to change the way if something like that were ever to happen again. Agreed. So talk about the grind of being a pro. <laughs> um, the grind is a lot. It is and it isn't. You know, when you first start off, you're kind of just momentum driven. You, you know, you, you learn yourself. You learn how much you want to play, how many practice rounds, what your travel days, you know, all the logistics. But the grind, of, the grind is just living out of your suitcase. That's kind of where I dropped off as a part of not being a lifer, if you will, I was over traveling 35 weeks a year. Mm. I love it. If it was a tour that was confined to new England and it was, you know, I would be more inclined to be a lifer, but it's just a grind of, you know, you're packing your bag every Monday, you're in a new spot in the beginning and the, you know, you're competing. So that keeps you driven the whole time, but it, it's a, it's a lot of work and I don't think people realize how much goes into it. You know, with, on top of the practice prior weeks. And then when you're there, you're, you're go, go, gosh, sunrise to sunset, you know, but it, it's cool. It's so rewarding, but so hard work, a lot of hard work at the same time. Is it, is it weird being starstruck out there, seeing people that you've looked up to and, and being on the, the same playing field as them? Yeah. You know, my, my first year was very weird. You know, I'd walk into a practice round or whatever, but what's kind of nice too, is you're one big family out there. So once you know one person, they're kind of, you know, you get introduced real quick. So you're starstruck for a moment, but it honestly passes so quickly because you're, before you know it, you're paired with them or you've sat down at dinner with them. And, and I got to give a lot of credit to the veterans. And I'd hope that I was like this when people were rookies, you know, after I was out there for 10 or whatever years, they're really great to the rookies and the people, the people I remember most are those that came up to me when I was first starting and introduced themselves and stuff like that. And I think that goes a long way. That correlates generally to life. So yeah, it's pretty awesome to hear from. A, yeah. From a no, there's some awesome people out there. So I think the more people do it, the better. So over the course of those 10 years, uh, obviously you had some, you had some great moments. Give us, uh, give us kind of your, your favorite moment uh, and maybe your favorite course you played out there and stuff that really sticks with you still. Man, that's tough. I mean, so my rookie year, I also played on the European tour because uh, I don't know if you guys remember back, gosh, 2008, 2009 was when the LPGA tour was really struggling and our schedule was 
pretty sparse. Um, so I kind of took the opportunity to go to Europe a bit. So that in itself was quite a memorable year and experience just because that was my backpack through Europe, if you will. Um, gosh, every U.S. Open and British Open, I, just because they are the the top event and you just gear yourself up so much for them. I love Turnberry. I mean, for some reason, I just that stands out to me. My first ever pro event, I was leading and going into Sunday pair with Laura Davies. Wow. I didn't do well on Sunday. So we won't talk about that part, but like, <laughs> stuff like that, you know, you have these different things you think about and you forget about, but it, yeah, a lot of good memories. Well, you can talk about, talk about the Saturday night, Sunday morning vibe, not so much the result of Sunday, but, but that must've been cool. Your first event, you're in the lead and you're paired with a legend. Yeah, no. And so I, I was in Australia. It was the Australian open. My mother traveled with me to Australia because I was literally fresh out of school. She came over with me and there was fires. We were in Melbourne. I'll never forget this was fires going on. So everything was like, there was ash everywhere. It was almost like crazy smog, if you will. But I don't know the lead going into Saturday or Sunday. I've been in positions where you're close, you know, going into Sunday. It's hard to sleep. It's hard not to think about it, but you try to, you try to just really be routine focused you know, not get ahead of yourself. It's hard. People say that, that they slept well, or they didn't think about it. I mean, I think they're lying. Um, <laughs> like everyone, you know, that's the psychological thing to say, but that's the thing. You just got to try to literally do routine, maybe just rest a bit, you know, not pay attention to, you know, the next morning. Like I wouldn't watch it on TV, stuff like that. I would just kind of, cause I never would anyways, you know, let your caddy, if they're going to go out there and check out the course, stuff like that you know, put your trust where it has always been, but yeah, I guess there's nothing really different. It's just, you happen to be in that position. Did you have a regular caddy out there at the time or did you have a few different ones? So that was my very first event. So I had this guy who's actually out on the men's tour. Uh, Ricky Barnes went to university of Arizona and Andy is one of the, co- Andy cat Barnes actually co- um, caddies for Charlie Hoffman now, but he was at U of A as an assistant at the time. And Ricky had a caddy, um, this guy, Jason Shortall out in Australia. He was from Australia and it was there off weeks or whatnot. So he looped for me for, I think we had two events over there. And, um, so it was just like a one-off at that time. And he's great. We became, you know, good friends. We keep in touch, but no, then I had regular caddies. Yeah. As I went on. Yep. Very cool. So you mentioned sort of the scarcity of events on the LPGA tour when you were playing, talk to us a little bit about, how the tours evolved, the job that that Mike Wan did, and and the transition now to a new commissioner of the tour. Um, you know, doing a little reading about her. You know, she mentioned purses, partners, global growth, and exposure as her big four talking points. But talk about how you've seen the tour kind of grow and evolve in the last decade, decade and a half. Yeah. So my rookie year, like I was saying, was Carolyn Bivens's last year. So Mike Wan came in. So I always say we're kind of rookies together, which was kind of a cool perspective because I got to see it progress with him. He did an unbelievable job. You know, every year the purses got stronger and, and you know, higher, um, more events came in. He really, really pushed on, you know, we have a campaign, which is kind of corny, but it's great at the same time to see why it's different out here. And it, and he really ingrained that in us, you know, we handwritten notes after every pro-am, you know, partner profiles on everything. So everybody, no one had an excuse not to know about who our sponsors were, who you were playing your pro-am with. So you were very in touch, which I think goes a very long way. And I think that just kind of reciprocated well with our partners to come back and support the tour. 
So I think that's kind of what he, his mark he made on us. And now he's going on, obviously he's the new exec for the USGA, but our new uh, commissioner who's coming in this week, I think is week one. I'm sure she's been vetted, uh, vetted well on that. I think our tour is in a great spot right now as part of product with women in sports. So I really hope that they, you know, capitalize on that opportunity with certain companies and stuff like that. But I think the sky's the limit if, if the job's done well right now. Yeah, I totally agree. I thought Mike won. I mean, certainly from an outsider looking in was, I mean, as good as you guys could have hoped for. And, and, uh, the growth that, that the tourists made is second to none. Um, you know, one of the things that sticks out to me that I love when I watch uh, LPJ events and certainly now majors is the venues, the venues are so good now. And, and, so deserving that that the best women in the world can play at the best venues in the world. And so you go through the list. I mean, they're at Olympic this week, which is obviously awesome. But I, you know, the Solheim Cups later this year, Inverness is fantastic. You got Pebble coming up soon. I mean, to me, that enhances the event because the, the women's open is a star in and of itself. But to have also a great golf course. I mean, talk about how that transition to great venues has really enhanced the product as well. Yeah. So you hit that spot on. Cause I played with Jason Gore a couple of weeks ago down in Florida, actually. Scott, and, um, you know, he got hired in the USGA as this player relations role. And he, he was awesome to talk to from a woman's pros perspective. Cause he really, really supports the LPGA and the platform for women's golf. And he, and he brought that up, you know, if, if we get the same, if we had a platform, like great venues, and people aren't necessarily the fan or the watching the women's golf, they're going to watch. If there's a women's open at a Shinnecock or a Pebble or something like that, people are going to engage with that. And I think if you give the opportunity and then, you know, people aren't going to remember, they're always going to remember, you know, so-and-so won at Shinnecock or so-and-so won at Olympic club. So I think those platforms are huge for our success. Yeah. And, and the best courses ideally decide the best champions. Totally. Yeah. And people can relate with that you know, if they're, if they're comparing with the men and whatnot. So what well, I, I think that speaks, um, you mentioned Pinehurst, obviously hosting the open and Michelle, we like, I remember that one specifically with the back-to-back, but also her winning. Cause that was such a, a pinnacle moment for her in a pinnacle course. So I think that's spot yeah. on. And I think if you go back, I mean, I mean, it might've been changed now, but when I was diving into some analytics there, it's the most watched women's event of his in history that Pinehurst women's open. I mean, granted, Michelle, we was helping our cause because she's a person that resonates with people. But still, I think just the fact that we were there and whatnot also feeds into it. So it's U.S. Open Week. Talk about, um, you know, go back to when you were a player and and you were playing the U.S. Open. How are you feeling on the on the Wednesday before U.S. Open? I hope you feel prepared and you're resting, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I think Wednesday's all about you have your game plan and you're kind of just easing your day you know, and rest, you know, depending on what your week entails. Cause it's a grueling task. You know, the, the course is always set up hard, generally harder than the rest of the, the tour schedule, if you will. So I would hope if, if people are doing their, if they're crossing their T's and down their eyes, they're, they're prepared at this point and they're just kind of going through the motions of prep. Yeah, I saw a couple of images yesterday of the Marine layer kind of blowing in. I don't know if you saw those same images. Yeah. And it was like, whoa, they were on the range and the caddies and the coaches and the agents, everyone else were throwing their rain gear on and ducking for cover. And the players were out there grinding through it. So, yeah, San Francisco, man, that place is we, we play a tour event right next door at uh, Lake Merced hmm. for the last, I guess it's been there for now six or seven years. Every year you can get 
all four seasons in, you know, <laughs> in a day. In a day. And <laughs> I, I, I feel bad for these girls because yesterday was brutal if you saw some of the content posted, but I don't know. I didn't even actually look at the outlook recently of the week. I don't know if it's meant to be great or bad, but that place can be tough with the weather. You know, I haven't seen it. And you spoke to the difficulty of the course. I saw some numbers yesterday, but so normally the, the slope and rating, or pardon me, the, yeah, the rating and slope is like for women, 68.6 to 70.1. And for this week, it's 79.4. And then, you know, normally the slope 124 to 141, and this week is 145. So yeah. 79.4 and 145. But see, this is where I wonder though, because this is where this is another issue we could dive into at another point. But those slope and ratings are those off your just your general women's scorecard? Great question, right? So this was posted by the USGA. So I okay, good. I so that, it's but, relative um, then, yeah, because yeah. a lot of it's uh, yeah, you can't be relative. But um, yeah, I, I know I talked to a bunch of girls out there. I actually talked to Jason Gore when I was playing with him a couple of weeks ago because he literally flew in from course setup and knowing that place how tough it is and how. I've heard it has been set up and what I've heard from some of the players out there, it's going to be a very tough, tough test. I think it's a hard golf course. I mean, it's just like these relentless par fours. I assume you played there, Allison. Yeah, I've played it. I love it. It's very traditional, which I I'm all about that. And I love that the opens back at a traditional golf course, but it's tough. And the way it's set up right now, the fairways are super tight. It's playing long the way it's set up. Like, um, so it's, it's going to be, unless they adjust tees because of the weather and because of conditions and it plays like as the card reads, I think the scores are going to be pretty high. Well, you don't, yeah, cause you don't have many par fours. I mean, par, par five, Scotty, as you mentioned, you, I think you start with a par five and then the next par fives don't come till the 16th or 17th hole or something like that. Right. So it's just. Yeah. And apparently they're not gettable for where the tees are set up, right. you know, on the card, if you will. I was reading an article about uh, Kay Cockrell, who's obviously been like a 20 year member up there and is a two time USAM champ back in the 80s. And so a bunch of the bunch of the pros that are playing this week had called her up over the course of the last couple of months and kind of had her tour them around the course. And she said, and I'm going to forget the pro right now, so forgive me, but only one pro she thought the 16th hole was reachable for. Other than that, to your point, it's a three shot hole. Yeah, I know. I think one's a par five going out, right? Yeah, that one I think is reachable. Yeah, so that's the only one that I know is like from me playing, remember? And then when I've talked to people, they say you kind of go out, you have an opportunity there. And then once you get to like eight, eight through 18, it is like hang on. And that's a lot of golf to hang on. That's a lot of hanging, yeah. That's a lot of hanging with no, (laughs) you know, no thoughtful opportunities, I guess I should say. But so that's tough, you know, and right. and coming out on one with a par five is kind of nice because you can kind of make a mistake and hopefully, you know, still keep par in realm with a par right. five. But if that's kind of one of your only ops, that's a tough, tough process to get through. Yeah, I'm out at that point. I'm hanging on every hole normally. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm out. so Allison, no, good, by the way, just uh, I just took a quick look. No rain, 60 degrees as high as every day. Sun. Oh, that's that's huge. That's good. Right? That's, that's actually really good because if that place was playing windy and wet, it'd just be tough. They'd have to, I would assume, I would hope the USGA at that point would maneuver their boxes. Yeah, exactly. So kind of knowing the golf course, knowing what a U.S. Open setup is like, what do you think, what kind of game is 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 the winner going to have? You know, is it 
100% keeping it in play in the fairway. Um, I think that probably goes without saying at a U.S. Open, but knowing what you know about the golf course and how they're going to set it up, how they traditionally set it up, what's it going to take for the winner? Yeah, I mean, I think it's Murphy's Law. Every time you think about the U.S. Open at these courses, um, it's hitting fairway, right? If you don't hit the fairway, um, you're you're usually chipping out or you're trying to get as much club as you can on and get as close to the green as possible. So I think hitting fairways and then always generally at, at, at U.S. Opens and even thinking on Olympic Club in particular, high ball flight or people that can spin the golf ball because you're kind of short-sided around all those greens. And there's a lot of, you know, a little bit of elevation changes at the Olympic club. So I think if, you know, obviously and to get in the fairway, it gives you that opportunity to hit those type of golf shots on your approaches. So I think somebody that's going to let themselves in the fairway, but then it's, it's tough because right. Those girls that hit the ball high with spin are generally your longer players or have power, you know, and I don't know. Does that equate to hitting fairways? It depends on the type of person. Um, but I think number one is fairways. If someone's hitting fairways, that's you're, you're saving yourself from a lot of bogeys. So I see NB's the betting favorite. She's a, obviously someone hits fairways, but there are a bunch of great storylines. I mean, Lydia Coe's comeback this year is pretty special. Obviously NB's the, the favorite. I think the quarter sisters are a great story. Yep. Michelle Wee playing again is a story. I mean, Jitanagarn sisters. So touch on a few of those, if you will, for us. Yeah. So I think Inby is a favorite for obvious reasons. I mean, she always gets it done. She's really good. Inby's going to hit fairways. I mean, that girl's just automatic hitting fairways. I think though, and not to discredit Inby by any means, I don't know about the like, the high ball flight, the spin, all that stuff, you know? Right. So I don't know. I don't know if that would come into factor. I think you get those Cordas or even like someone like an Austin Ernst, Jess Corda, you know, Nelly, they're, they're hit. They're playing great, obviously. And they're, they're playing well lately. They've won this year. They hit the ball, you know, they've got great hands. So I think if you miss the greens, if you got good hands, that short game is going to be huge, right? Cause you're not, people are going to be missing up fairly here and there. So I think all those names you named are going to be clutch. Michelle lives locally. I know she's played it a bunch. She plays at Lake Merced right down the street. So she's been out there routinely of late. So she's probably got a one up and as far as prep and she's, she played well in the last event she played in. So I'm trying to think of, um, you know, Brooke Henderson. I don't think, I think she's been trending well. She hits it long. She's strong. So if she's in that rough, that's a good opportunity there, but it, it's tough. I it's, I think if someone's hitting their driver well, they're going to be in the mix because there's so many people that are, that's the cool thing with the LPGA right now. There's people, different people winning every week, you know, Lydia Coe being back is huge. She's a fairway hitter. So I don't think she's a bad, you know, a bad pick either. Yeah. I was wondering if you were going to mention Brooke Henderson, obviously, because her swing and her power are just incredible. And she is a top four betting favorite this week, but she kind of, it kind of goes against the grain relative to hitting fairways, right? Cause she's going to hit a lot longer than most, but I don't know how many fairways she's going to hit. So right. And that's kind of where, and I hate, yeah, that's where I like was like not to discredit people, but like, you know, the quarters are long, right. And if they're hitting their drivers well, or even, you know, Brooke, then they're right there. But if you're right, if they're longer, like part of the game is power and swinging it. And if they're in the rough, they're in the rough. So that might hurt them especially with like the elevation Olympic club, you know, if you're in the rough and you're hitting on a flat shot, you can kind of generally, you know, bounce a ball up or use your terrain a bit. You know, there's holes like 18 at Olympic club. You're hitting uphill. If you're in the rough, you can't, you know, maneuver it down the fairway there to get on. So there's the elevation is going to come into play with not fairways. I think. 
Yeah, I think it's so cool. I actually think that is the, as Scotty mentioned, the kind of premier courses and historical courses for these type of events. I think that's great because you can envision a bunch of the holes at Olympics. So when you talk about 18, kind of coming up to the clubhouse and that elevated finish, really a cool spot that you that can bring memories for people and kind of connect the two, the event and the course forever. So, yeah, no, I think, yeah. So I think a lot of, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a veteran win just because I think a lot of conservative planned out play at a course like this could be go a long way. And patience, um, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. A lot of patience, a lot of course strategy, I think somewhere like this. And then, I mean, like anything else, short game, right? But I think I would hope they're all prepared and that's, that's in tune. So there are a lot of stereotypes that are, I think are just plain wrong and not accurate, you know, between, you know, about, about the LPGA, like the courses are too easy. The courses are short. The women don't hit it far. I mean, you could go on and on about these ridiculous stereotypes that just plain aren't true. What one drives you the most crazy? God, everything you just said. (laughs) (laughs) D, all of the above. Yeah. So I want, again, I hate, I don't, I think our game is very unrelatable because a lot of people think of it in one manner and that that that's not true, right? So people will think, you know, you go to the men's US Open and it's long and it's set up hard and no discredit to that. But, you know, 90% of the time, if they're in a rough, they probably have a nine iron in their hand, right? Like, we get out there and we're in the rough and it's wet and you got like a five or a four iron. It's like, how are you going to get that ball up? How are you going to carry it? Imagine if the men, if the men were in that situation. So I always say it'd be so cool if we had an event where, and it's kind of, it's kind of impossible, have the exact same irons into the hole. Right. And I, I see agree. Where the scores go, right. Like see if girls have opportunities for 59, see if the men all of a sudden are hitting the clubs we're hitting in. And our scoring statistics out outplay them. So, and I think it'd be great for the consumer, right? Like if, if you see people, then you could say, oh my gosh, instead of these girls are not, they're missing every green. Well, they're hitting four irons in every green out right. of the rock, you know? Right. So I think there's a lot of stereotype there that they think, you know, our games aren't up to par with the men's tour, but I think it's unrelatable. So when people say that, I'm like, man, I don't think they realize the stats behind it all. Um, I think... So, I, you know, a buddy of mine is trying to put up a recreation, like a um, a tournament coming up with a par three venue with a couple of tour players to literally go head to head with the same irons. And I think that would be oh, something yeah. really cool, um, like an exhibition. I think the stereotype, too, of girls hit it nowhere. I would love for your average guy to come out and play the same tee box as them. I think they just don't realize that, you know, there's so many times I'll go to a golf course and people know that I play pro or played pro and they'll literally still question why I'm playing the men's tee. And it, you know, <laughs> for the women's tees like 5,200 yards, you know? And I'm like, well, that wouldn't be very fun. And, <laughs> and then you tee it up and you hit it and they're like, Oh, I didn't know just because you're, you know, and so it's, there's so many stereotypes that drive me nuts. And it's more the reason for people to go out and watch and really like, you know, appreciate it. Well, isn't it funny too that the, the the guy who's questioning where you're playing from ought to be playing from the set of tees that's about fifty two hundred yards. Yeah, yeah. You know, I could I could trash on new boys. No, I'm just kidding. But um, it's oh, so should. true. You know, these guys want to play the tips at Beth Page, and they're a twenty handicap. You know, it's like, 
Yeah, it's I don't I can't stand it. So no, I, what Matt said, what you said is spot on. The fact that someone is that out of line to question that is just that bothers me so much right now. Just listening to it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there, you know, there, and there's the opposite too. There's people that really genuinely get it and appreciate the the talent that the women have. But I would say, if you're generalizing, people don't really understand the caliber that some of these girls are. So, sort of segueing into what we're doing with Women's Golf Week. I mean, I'm sure you've seen more initiatives to get more girls and more women involved in the game, but what do you think we're doing We're doing well at? What do you think we need to do more of? Where do you think we need to focus? Is it more on girls? Is it more on mid-am aged women? What are your thoughts sort of on the grassroots growth of, of the women's game? Um, it's opportunity. I think, you know... If you're thinking about it, like where I grew up right now, a lot of girls played in the Northeast, like up here, right? Because our weather doesn't promote it. It's a small season. So um, it wasn't necessarily a girl's sport. It's growing for sure, which is a positive. But I think opportunity, you know, like I think it's not it's not of equal. It's not a quality yet with the men's. There's more, to, you know, like even little things. If you go to state run events, you know, the women's state amateur in Massachusetts, I can't speak for New Hampshire or other States. wasn't ever called the state amateur. It was the so-and-so or whatever it's transitioned, you know? So I think branding goes a long way in that aspect. So then if people see, Oh, it's a state am, it's not the whatever cup or I think stuff like that goes a long way. And that's, it sounds petty, but it's, it, that's opportunity, right. To present it in a different manner in a different light. I think venues, um, on the professional level, like Scott was talking about giving platforms that are just as good and as a caliber to the men is stuff like that. When younger girls are watching it or college players are watching that, that's, that's fun and exciting and they want, it's motivating. So making it more motivating and more opportunistic, I think is just breeds it, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I think the opportunity that really accomplished amateur golfers now have the opportunity to go play Augusta National, just like, you know, the men do. This is not something that they have to watch every year and say, I'm not ever going to get a chance to play at a tournament there. But that's another step, as Scott mentioned, with the other venues. So I, I think it's a great point about opportunity and and access. And, I, you know, as someone who's at a works for a, a governing body, albeit a small one, you, you do need to make sure that you, you are, it's just as important that those women's championships are at places that are equal to or greater than the men's championships. hundred percent. Right. I mean, it sounds so third world, doesn't it? When we're talking about it, that like, like I get driven nuts and there's plenty of places that I, that I love that I go to all the time. And, and, but I hate if I'm done around and we want to grab a drink or a bite to eat, but the the place to sit, the cool place to sit or the nice place to sit outside, it might be men's only. It's like, mm-hmm. well, what the heck? Like, okay, I, I'm going to go home then. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so stuff like little things like that, I think drive women or girls away, you know? And so the fact that it's not of equal, like I want to build a women's only golf club. That's so badass. <laughs> and that men want to come play and I'll be like, well, you know what? You can only come this day, you know, but I don't at the same time because it's just, it's hypocritic. Right. But that's where it's just, it's sad to me. I think we're trending, but it's sad that it's not even like equal at all. You know? 
When I tell my wife that we had you on, she will listen to this episode so fast. <laughs> Honestly, she'll be so supportive of everything you're saying. And, and she's not in the golf industry. She doesn't enjoy golf, but everything you're saying crosses over to so many different things that uh, are challenges right now. Well, so. your point's so well made. It's, I mean, so antiquated and archaic to think that, you know, let's flip it around. Let's just say that I can't play at my home course on Saturday mornings before noon. I mean, how yeah. ridiculous is that? Especially you know I mean? if you're paying the same thing, right? right. Like, We're both on. members. You can play. And I, I mean, I don't get it. So, you know, men are the problem. No doubt about it. Um, uh, but I think we're making baby steps. I do sense that there is progress. And and while it's not moving maybe as quickly as we all like to see, I do think we're getting there. I mean, just the mere fact that the British Open, women's British Open is going to Muirfield. I mean, that's right. huge, right? I mean, that's huge. Now, it's way too long in coming. And the fact they just barely now have a women member after all this time is crazy. But it is progress, maybe at a snail's pace, but it is progress. No, I agree. And I, and, and I, people will say, and then people will turn it quickly to the, the purses. I don't, I don't care. Honestly, the purses are going to be different. That's different. That's economical and that's business driven, right. To a point, you know, if the PJ tour is reaping in X amount on TV or they're doing whatever, like that's business at the end of the day. Yes. Of course, hopefully we can get there by opportunity, but I just think as far as opportunity, it should be more equal. And all that being said, now we've got to ask you, are you team Brooks or team Bryson? <laughs> oh man. I'm team Brooks. <laughs> I think most are. Yeah. <laughs> I think most are. I respect and appreciate DeChambeau's mad scientist stuff and yada, yada, but I don't know. I'm a traditionalist and an athlete at heart. So yeah, I got to go Brooks. Well, it's entertaining to say the least, at least for the rest of us, it is, I think. It is, it is. I mean, it's great. It's good hype. I think, do you think it's what the people are saying? It's hype for that social, uh, that social bonus? I don't, only because I don't think Brooks would play that game. So, so I think it possibly was somebody else. I just don't see Brooks playing that sort of game. So I do, I think it's legit. Yeah, I do too. I do too. I mean, everybody's, yeah, everyone's got a, a rival or everyone's competitive, right? It wouldn't be out there if they weren't, but I don't know. I, I, I enjoy Brooks. I'm, I know Brooks. I don't really know Bryson at all. So part of it's uh, bias, but <laughs> team Brooks. Well, I will disagree with you both. I do think there is a, uh, a play towards that um, player bonus piece, but uh, I don't I know. I think Brooks just really hates him. I think that that could be true. But if uh, if you're in the top 10 or however that thing shakes out, that's worth it too. (laughs) But they don't need it. See, I think that's an issue too. What's that 40 million doing for these guys that are going to win it? It makes no sense. Put it to the corn fairy. Totally agree with that point. Put it to the corn fairy. Put it to the bottom purses. Put it to people that don't make the cut. There's a lot of different ways you can go with it for sure. Yeah. So I was watching the women's match play and I was really curious what your thought. I mean, first of all, I thought it was great. And, and while I can, I can get why TV doesn't want more match play, I personally enjoy watching it because it's a different dynamic and stuff happens. And Allie Ewing, Allie McDonald and Allie Ewing ends up winning, which was a great victory. But, but I was, and I hate to bring up a negative within that context, but I was blown away at the ruling for Carlotta Saganda. Um, okay. and, and help me understand how, and I don't even know all the details other than they're tied on 18. She birdies 18 for the win. She walks off the green and says, you got a slow play. You lost the hole. You lose the match. 
Yeah. And believe it or not, that's not the first time that's happened in the match play. Atha Munoz, gosh, years ago, there used to be a match play event at Hamilton Farms. And oh. um, she lost a match under the same circumstances, slow play. Yeah. So I think this is a good and a bad. The PGA, so slow play is a massive issue, right? Across the board. I think our tour takes it a lot more serious than the men's do just from watching. I think pro golf slow all around. I think the men are just as slow, if not slower. Slower. Um, Yeah. I I think they're slower. So I think it needs to be addressed and I think it needs to be pretty, pretty penalizing. Right. In order for people to actually care. Cause instead it used to be just a penalty. Right. I think it are fine money, fine as a penalty. And then instead of like now in stroke play, they're determining like strokes to add on, which I think is more detrimental to your round or your tournament than it would be money wise. It sucks that Carlotta lost. Carlotta is slow. I love Carlotta, but she is very slow. So now with the new rule change, they used to always have to give you a warning, let you know your group's out of position. Then they come up and, you know, they time everyone individually once you got a warning. And then they come up and give you an individual warning and then you'd be slapped on a penalty, whatever it would be. Now they don't have to tell you that they're personally timing you if you've gotten X amount of warnings in the, in the year. So I'm assuming Carlotta had to have something under her belt as far as her quota is concerned for her not to know going into that hole. It's unfortunate. It went down the way it went down. I wasn't watching it, but yeah, I I don't know. I mean, if she was slow and it was what it was and it's, it's black and white, but it stinks that it was on the 18th hole and in that light. Well, Scott, Uh, you and I talked about it a little Friday and I guess I sort of thought I was thinking about it last night and, and Allison, I think you're right. Either it's a problem or it isn't. And if it's a problem, you either have to try to solve the problem or you ignore it. And I think for too long on the men's tour in particular, they paid lip service to it that we know slow play is a problem, but nothing ever gets done about it outside of penalizing a 15 year old in the masters or whatever it was, however old he was when they, when they did that. So is it a tough spot for her to be in to lose a match because of slow play? Sure. But there's a policy. She knows what it is. I'm sure it's been explained to her multiple times. If she's as slow as you're saying she is, Allison, then you have to know there are consequences if you can't play faster. And this was just in a singles match. So it's just the two of them. And she can't even keep a a halfway decent pace in that case. Again, I go back to either if it's a problem, then you got to try to solve the problem and doing stuff like this, that gets the player's attention that cost her money because she lost the match and now she's out of the golf tournament. Yeah, I agree. I'm kind of in the same boat as you, but it's just very unfortunate it happened to be that in that way. But I agree. It has to be black and white. Otherwise we keep saying, oh, well, maybe, maybe not, you know, and I don't think that that's progressive. Well, the tour, I mean, I'll I'll talk about the men now because I think they are a far greater problem. And the reality is, I think it is lip service. I don't think they're doing anything to it. They talk about needing to fix it. But to your point, Allison, I think you're 100% spot on. You do it through strokes. Money is not going to do it. There's too much money out there. So money's not going to prevent somebody or or speed somebody up. But if you assess a two-stroke penalty, wow, now all of a sudden uh, things change. And so... I think it's crazy that it takes five hours for a twosome or a threesome to play golf. I mean, it's crazy. And so yeah. to Matt's point, I don't think they really want to fix it because they're not really doing anything about it to fix it. They're just providing lip service. Well, it's like Sunday at the PGA, right? With Brooks and um, Phil, people were the talk of the day amongst beyond Phil just playing awesome was 
go slow playing Brooks, right? There was a lot of topic on that or, and, and he wasn't necessarily slow in his bubble when he was over the ball and stuff like that. But imagine if he was right. And then it's like, where's the tour now, you know, but, and they're going back to, it gets annoying. Remember when Bryson was so slow a couple nope. years ago, watching it was awful. Like watching paint dry, I would change the channel. I couldn't do it. Well, so, and it becomes, know. it becomes part of Phil's strategy, right? To be as deliberate as he can, knowing that at, at worst, they're going to get told they're out of position and then he can pick it up a little bit and he's fine. Again, it goes back to consequences. There are no real consequences you know, being deliberate is fine. Taking your time and over a really important shot, I, I get it, but it, it just seems it, it's almost unfair to the players that do play faster that they kind of know somebody can go into a final round like that and say, "I'm just going to take my time," and and there aren't going to be any consequences for me, even if we're behind and we get a second warning. I'm still not going to have to worry about getting a, a shot penalty or a two stroke penalty. I'll just kind of pick it up and act like we're making an effort. And and they'll take us off the clock. So it's it's in some ways it's it's tougher for the players that are faster. Yeah. No. And there's been plenty of situations where you're playing with someone you know is historically slow. You do get that warning, and then all of a sudden you as a playing partner stress out, and you're like, yeah. oh, I got to make up this time. And you know you try not to, but it's inevitable. And then that naturally that slow player picks up the pace for that two holes, like you're saying. So <laughs> it is unfortunate, and that's where you're like, man, I wish they got a penalty right away. You know. Yeah. But I don't know. Well, this has been awesome, Allison. Before we let you go, though, we've got to we've got a segment on the show we call our quick nine. Scott's going to ask you nine questions, no right or wrong answer. It's just going to give us a little insight or a little more insight, I should say, into your golf personality. So, no pressure on these. Just the first thing that comes to your mind, and I'll let Scotty fire away. All right, here we go. Walk or ride? Walk. Uh, do you allow mulligans on the first tee? On a situational basis. <laughs> <laughs> well, whether it's your shot or somebody else. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no course records with a with a breakfast ball, though. Fair enough. Fine, I'm fine with it. Fine with it. <laughs> Remember that on the cradle. Uh, stroke play or match play? Match. I think I know the answer to this one because I, I read that you were actually born in Ireland, but the question is Scotland or Ireland? Ireland. <laughs> Jack or Tiger? Tiger. The favorite course you have played and the course you most want to play? Have Royal Melbourne want Cyprus. Good answers. Uh, your favorite foursome and your fantasy foursome? Favorite foursome, like a dream foursome? Yep. There are no, you can make it up as you go along, but generally right. it's who's a favorite, your favorite foursome you've ever played with or would like to play with. Oh man. Um, Tiger Woods. Have you ever played? You've never played with Tiger at Melist? No, I've like messed around and like hit shots of them and stuff, but I've sure. never, yeah. yeah. I just would love to play with them just cause it's an epic, you know, it's yeah. nothing like it. Tiger Woods, Ben Hogan. Can I go, can I, Absolutely. can I go six feet under? All right. Yeah. Ben Hogan and Kari Webb. Okay. What is uh, the, the golf day or golf event that you look forward to most every year? Uh, the U.S. Open. It's a good week. Yeah. All right. And uh, always curious, our last one, your favorite go-to post-round beverage. Oh, man. 
situation. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love a good blue moon. There you go. Beautiful. Yeah. That's awesome. So I'm, I'm going to ask one more question on this one, Scotty, because we got to give her a different perspective. So obviously we say Jack Tiger. So I'm going to say Annika or Kari Webb. Webby. There you go. Really? Okay. Yeah. I think that would surprise a lot of people. Do you, well, do you mean by like caliber and historic? Like, yeah, no, I go with Webby anyways, across the board. Could be Very any cool. perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Allison, thanks so much, boys. Really yeah, great to you. have you on. Um, you know, the Solheim Cups later this year, maybe uh, we can squeeze in for another one as we get near the Solheim Cup, but it was great to have you on. Great to catch up. And I look forward to getting you and Chris to Lake Sunapee Country Club this summer. Yeah. Thank you guys. It was awesome. Yeah, thank uh, you, Allison. That was great. Very cool. Good to meet all you guys too. Glad to have you on. Thanks, Allison. Appreciate Be it. well. Take, Take care. care. All right. Y'all too. Bye. Bye-bye.